Hello and welcome to the We Are Habs podcast, the show that lifts the lid on some of the old girls and boys who, after leaving haberdashers, have made their mark on the world. I'm Elliot Gotkin, Meadows, 87 to 94. I'm a journalist, master of ceremonies and host of the FinTech podcast. My guest today is best known for turning a shopping basket manufacturer worth a million pounds into the world's biggest advertising and PR agency. WPP today is worth around 12 billion pounds. After leaving in 2018, he founded S4 Capital, a digital advertising and marketing company. He's a governor of the LSE and received a knighthood in the year 2000. Sir Martin Sorrell, uh, welcome to the We Are Habs podcast. Nice to see you, Elliot, and I uh, hope everything is wonderful in Tel Aviv. I was a Henderson, actually. I wasn't a Sprout or Strout, <laughs> as well, whatever it was. I was a Henderson. You reminded me when you said Meadows, and I, I, I left me. in 63. I left in 63, so uh, went off to university in 63 after many years. I was at Haberdash's prep school as well. I don't know whether you were at the prep school as well. I was not. I, I came in uh, aged eleven, but it was actually it was actually myself that was in Meadows. So we always kind of, you know, Hendersons were always like the the kind of sportier guys, I guess. Um, so uh, sporty, so, sportier and brainier, I would say. Right. Well, uh, who am I to argue? Um, but look, it's good <laughs> to have you have you join us. Uh, I know in in business, of course, there are always challenges. Right now, we're of course coming off the back. We hope of the uh, COVID crisis. We've got surging inflation, stock markets all over the place, obviously not unrelated to those previous things. And of course, Russia now having just invaded Ukraine. Um, how do you choose which one of these keeps you up at night? Um, well, I think if you, if you, if there, there are always these challenges. I mean, I, I, we, we seem to be living in particularly volatile times. I mean, as we had our review of January at S4 yesterday and uh, one of the, uh, uh, our, my colleague said, uh, "You know, we just got we've just got over COVID, and now we have Ukraine to do. We actually have about a hundred people in the Ukraine, uh, and thank goodness uh, at the moment they're they're all safe. We tried to get them all out uh, about three or four weeks ago, uh, but they didn't want to move. Actually, most of them didn't want to move. Uh, and just as a, a lot yesterday, uh, a number of them decided to try try and leave, uh, and of course they were stopped at the border." Uh, the men were stopped at the border. I think the women were let through, but we have about uh, just under 100 and about 10 of them have left the country. The other 80 or 90 of them have decided to stay or have to stay because they can't get out. And it's a tragic situation and we're extremely concerned for them and their families. We have a, a smaller number in Moscow. Uh, we have about uh, 10, 20 people in, in Moscow, but... Uh, we have some exposure to Ukraine, and obviously, it's uh, a terrible, terrible situation. Yes, we obviously, uh, you know. So, so dealing, you know, dealing with these things, I, I, I think they they come with the territory. And we, if I, I look back, we had the two thousand eight financial crisis. We had the internet boom and bust. We had the oil crisis. Uh, we had our own crisis at WPP when we had to restructure the company and. 1992 and when i over leveraged the company i have to take responsibility for that after we merged with uh, or acquired uh, ogilvy in 1989 uh, we we funded that with a convertible preferred which which didn't convert because the markets were down and became a preferred and therefore a debt instrument so we were over leveraged and we did a debt for equity swap so we've we've had you know as you if you run a business or try to run a business of the, the nature of such is where I was before WPP or WPP itself or S4 itself. 
given the fact they are global companies, I mean, S4 is now 8,200 people in 33 countries, we, we have to deal with uh, all the uh, volatility. And I would say the volatility has increased. Uh, if you look at the average life of a company uh, in the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500, I think McKinsey says it's gone down to about nine or 10 years. So, uh, and if you went back in time, uh, you would have found that the the, the life of a, a company, the longevity was much, much more significant. And that's because of the volatility that's that's been brought about, I think, by changes in technology and changes in geography as well, as we're witnessing at the moment. Uh, that's one driving force. And then there's the changes in technology. So those two things shape you know, what we do. So when I was at Saatchi's, it was about globalization. WPP was about globalization and the beginnings of the, the tech revolution around the internet. And S4 is focused totally on technology and growth. So, you know, I've see, sort of seen three, I've had three lives in the advertising and marketing services industry, and they've each had their own different emphasis. Right. And as you say, you know, there are always crises that that, that come along that you have to deal with. It comes with the territory of of running a business, but I understand you. Yeah, also yeah. Have- I mean, just just one thing. I mean, when I was at WPP, it was in 2016. We had the hack in Ukraine, I and mean, when we actually in Ukraine, we were using a software system, a payroll system. There were two systems in the Ukraine for for payroll. You had legally to, if you had uh, employees, you had to deduct their social insurance or whatever it is through payroll system. I think it was called Medcom or Mecom, something like that. And uh, we, of course, chose, uh, as luck would have it, the wrong system. And we, we believe that it was Russian hackers took down that system. And you may re- recall Maersk and a big law firm and ourselves were the subject of uh, cyber attacks. So we've had crises uh, of that nature that when you're running an international business, as I said, you, you, you face that. I think one, one point to make in relation to what's going on at the moment is that I think what the Ukraine signals, uh, and you and I were talking before we started about the origins of this, maybe in Iraq or Syria or whatever, I, I think we are witnessing a radical shift in terms of um, geopolitical uh, stability or instability. I mean, clearly something happened in Beijing around the Olympics uh, between Russia and China, where where rightly or wrongly, we're pushing Russia further towards China. And that axis, uh, that Russian-Chinese axis, I mean, one wonders whether something has been discussed in relation not only of Ukraine, but Taiwan as well. So I, I, I think this has radical implications for the way that people run their businesses. I mean, China is the largest or second largest market for most of our clients. It's a market in which we I, I expanded very heavily or we expanded very with WPP in China. We have a 20 percent share of that market with about 16,000 people at one stage. Uh, S4 is much smaller in China, but we want to expand much more significantly at the moment. I mean, Asia Pacific is only 10 percent of our business. and We want it to be 40 percent. But I think the implications of what's happening in Ukraine go far further than is apparent. I mean, there's the issues around China and Taiwan and the issues about stability in Asia as well. So I think we're in for a very different period. And there's a rebalancing taking place in the world in terms of uh, uh, 
uh, political weight uh, and significance and Russia and China, China in particular, obviously, is gaining significant ground. And I understand you've also got a personal connection to, to Ukraine uh, going back a, a couple of generations. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Yeah, so so my, uh, to my best of knowledge and, and belief, and in fact, I did know my Zayda, as they say in Yiddish, Zayda and Bubba being grand, grandfather and grandmother. And I did know my, uh, my grandfather. My grandfather, we think, came from uh, Kiev, either Kiev or Lvov. And uh, came in 1899 with my grandmother. And uh, when my mother died, I found their marriage certificate. So I don't know whether they got married in 1899 in London or whether they had to register their marriage, which was Ukrainian, uh, in, in London. Uh, but interestingly, uh, they didn't sign the wedding certificate. They, they, they put crosses down and the four witnesses put crosses down. So clearly they couldn't speak a word of English. And my, my grandfather who I, I, I think never did a, a day's work, certainly when I knew him, um, claimed that, uh, that he had cut off a Cossack's hand uh, at the age of 10. Uh, he described how the Cossack put his, his hand over the uh, barricade, the barricade around the ghetto, as he described it, and he took a sword, a sharp sword, and chopped his hand off at the age of 10. So when you think about that story, whether true or not, because we don't know whether it was true or not, whether it's exaggeration, uh, might have chopped off just a finger, but but when you think about it, what's happening in Ukraine, you know, has deep historical roots. And and I have to say, look, we've only got ourselves to blame, I think, for what's happening in the Ukraine in in one sense. Uh, you know, Vladimir Putin has has never made any, it never sought to hide his ambitions to recreate Russia. Uh, whether you know that's an that's harks back to the Tsar or whether it harks back to Lenin or whoever, uh, I think it's more the Tsar than, than Lenin from a historical perspective, from what I'm told by historians like Simon Sharma. I was going to say, um, we need your, we need your yeah. friend to Simon Sharma to come back yeah, and, to, to go and, and, talk, and talk about it. But, you know, I think we only have ourselves to be because, because Putin is not, President Putin has not made any, not sought to disguise his ambitions at all. In fact, he wrote an article, I think it was a year ago, laying out the roadmap quite clearly. So, um, and, the, and the worrying thing is whether there's anything more to come, whether the Latvia, Estonia, whether the Baltic states are in his sights as well. Uh, that's obviously a different ball game, as they say, given it's both the NATO countries. So yeah. we'll, we'll have, have to watch, uh, watch how it develops. And as a businessman, uh, Sir Martin, how do you deal with these situations in the sense that as you say, for example, you're looking to expand into China, you have uh, operations or at least employees in both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, you know, perhaps some might suggest that, you know, the moral high ground would be or, or, or the, the moralistic thing to do would be to not expand into uh, China or to, to not expand operations into Russia. But at the same time, you have a fiduciary duty, presumably to your shareholders uh, to, to, to maximize you know, shareholder returns and whatnot. So, so how do you as a business person approach this? Do, do, does, does the kind of moral dilemma enter into your, your mind? Well, it's interesting. Increasingly, I mean, the ground has shifted. I mean, it used to be, I would say, five or 10 years ago, that those decisions were made by boards or directors or individuals or whatever. I think increasingly, 
those decisions are either made or influenced by people within the company. For so, you know, for example, looking at fossil fuels um, uh, at the moment uh, within within our industry or adjacent to our industry, uh, employees inside these businesses are increasingly voicing uh, their endorsement or opposition to to clients, and you you will find inside agencies now that uh, there are certain people who, uh, or there are people who will not work on fossil fuels. There are people inside agencies who won't work on tobacco. Uh, you know, th- so there are, I think increasingly that decision is not being taken outside, uh, out of the hands of <coughs> the leaders of companies, but <coughs> are influenced very heavily, particularly in service businesses like our own, by what our employees uh, are, are, think is right to do. and. Uh, what is wrong to do. So, for example, when I woke up yesterday, uh, you know, I woke up about six o'clock yesterday. Um, we have a, you know, I, I write to everybody um, every week about what's going on inside the company. And um, that that company uh, uh, communication was, uh, was very significant yesterday with people uh, writing in about how concerned they were about the Ukraine and how they concern, concerned they were about the situation and what was the company going to do about you know, immediately getting our people out of the Ukraine if we could do uh, or looking after them if we couldn't and what was our attitude going to be in relation to our operations there. So I, what I'm saying is I think that decision is increasingly framed not just by what you, the Friedman uh, the Friedmanite uh, approach that you, you, which I call the long-term profitability of the company, sorting it out, which then actually melds into what, what I've just been talking about. Because if you're concerned about the long-term profitability of the, the company, not the short-term, but the long-term profitability, you take into account all stakeholders' views. So you would take into account, in this case, uh, the question you asked, the the uh, interests and attitudes of employees or people inside the company to whether you work on a piece of business or not, or you work in a certain country or not. My own view is that you know if you're trying often, and I remember this going way way back to apartheid in South Africa. Remember it very clearly. Ford Motor Company was a major client of WPP. They took the decision to leave South Africa uh, for the obvious reason. The Kellogg's, on the other hand, took the uh, the opposite view that they would stay and try and genuinely, not this wasn't greenwashing uh, or an early example of greenwashing, generally try, genuinely try and change the attitude towards apartheid in South Africa. So I think it varies on a case-by-case basis. But, you know, I, I think when one looks back on the Beijing Olympics, uh, for example, I must say that I was somewhat surprised that there wasn't uh, more more um, noise, if I can put it that way, around the Uyghurs and what was going on in terms of human rights. And it was sort of relatively quiet on that front, which somewhat surprised me. I thought it would be a little bit more, um, the, the movements would have been a little bit more vehement than they turned out to be. But that issue is a, a very, in the case of China, is an extremely difficult one to uh, pontificate on because China is the largest or second largest or third largest market for most of the clients that we deal with. Um, you know, just to give you uh, an example of how difficult it is, uh, you know, I'm, 
heavily involved with the, the business council in the US, uh, which is about the top, what is it? It's about 120 leading companies, mostly Americans. Uh, and when Donald Trump made his, his sort of sanction moves on China, or uh, th there was general applause uh, from, from that community, particularly in relation to the movements or, or the moves around IP and technology and the like. But of course, when it started to hit profitability in, in China, uh, there was there was some um, movement backwards from that. So there is this practical issue, uh, which you pointed out about the balance between them. So it is a very difficult. And I think you have to do it on a case by case basis. And there'll be some cases where you say, uh, I'm not going to 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 get involved. And you'll say some cases where uh, you will get involved because you think at the end of the day, you can create some change by getting involved as a result. So very difficult to balance. And I think, uh, you know, Russia is probably a little bit easier, uh, with the exception of energy and commodities, it's probably a little bit easier uh, to make decisions in relation to whether you will engage or not engage. China is a very different situation. And it's different for the Chinese as well, because the Chinese depend, I mean, their economy is not in it greatest shape at the moment. It's slowed. Um, certainly, Russia could sell its oil and gas to Russia, uh, to China as opposed to Germany. So they have alternative markets. That may be one of the things that we've discussed between Presidents Putin and Xi uh, in Beijing. But China also depends for its exports on a healthy US and European market. And of course, if energy prices rise as a result of the Ukrainian invasion, which they have done and will, I suppose, continue to do so, uh, that puts pressure on the EU economy uh, and the American economy, and that will put pressure on Chinese exports. So China, it's a bit more uh, nuanced than people than people think. And, and of course, the other issue, that, uh, which is not not in related to your question, but I think my one just should should be quite clear about, it raises the whole question about what's going to happen to Taiwan. I mean, is right. uh, Taiwan China's Ukraine, if I can put it like that? And the interesting thing is that China, I think the Chinese foreign minister last week made it clear that the Chinese disapprove of intervention in sovereign states, which is a, you know, a direct relationship to what's happened in the Ukraine. So from a foreign policy point of view or policy point of view, the Chinese clearly uh, are opposed to the intervention in Ukraine, at least theoretically, although they made no noises since the invasion uh, in, in relation to disapproval. Right. I guess uh, perhaps some leaders have different uh, uh, understandings of what sovereign state means, but I know that's a rabbit hole we could go down quite deeply. But of course, as you were just uh, saying a moment ago, um, Sir Martin, you know, that the way that people do business and, and business leaders approach situations is, is, is very different these days from when it was uh, back, uh, you know, when you, I guess, uh, started, embarked on your career. And um, I know, of course, you're best known for founding WPP. Um, but I, I just wanted to take you back just a tiny bit further to begin with, um, to give us a bit of a whistle-stop tour of your, your career after getting your MBA, I think it was from Harvard, in, in right. 1968, you joined a couple of agencies, I think, and then before I, uh, I I went into consulting. Actually, I went to a marketing consultancy. But then, would you believe it? My uh, uh, my mother, uh, I was technically I could have been drafted. In uh, you, you got an exemption in 68 
when I graduated from HBS, uh, I, I got nine months for every year of education. I was there for two years, so I had 18 months exemption to the draft. People don't quite understand that even though you were a, for, a foreigner, you could have been drafted if you'd been. So my mother said there was no way, typical Jewish mother, there was no way that the little boy was going to go to Vietnam. And I was instructed to come back. So I came back, I, I was working for a marketing consultancy firm called Glendening Associates. And uh, I, I moved back to the UK and I met Mark McCormack, uh, the, uh, the, the famous sports, well, initially in golf with Arnold Palmer and Gary Player and Jack Nicholas, and John Broad Keeley and others, uh, Rod Laver, a sports representation agency, IMG, which now is owned by Ari Emanuel uh, and WME. And, um, and, I, I, <laughs> and I, so I joined, joined Mark because I met him at business school and he offered me a job when I returned to London. Uh, and then, you know, I tried to do something actually, you know, I was very close to my father. He was in uh, radio electrical retailing, ran a chain of 750 stores in the UK. And uh, very close to him. And, and I tried to do something with my father after I, I left Mark. In fact, I said, wrote to Mark and said, um, you know, I wanted a temporary leave of absence uh, to go and work for my father. And, and, and actually, interestingly, that was about 1971, 72. When we made our, our sort of, I think, notorious hostile bid for J. Walter Thompson in 1987, Mark wrote to me. He had a habit of reviewing his correspondence every year. And he he'd obviously... Gone, come over my letters asking for a temporary leave of absence. He wrote to me and he said, uh, are, are you still on a temporary leave of absence? That was in 1987. Anyway, um, I worked for Mark and then tried to do something with my father. And despite the fact I had a very close relationship with him, we just couldn't get it together. If it's one of the regrets of my life is um, that I, I couldn't work together with him and uh, really regret that we never managed to. I don't quite understand why, because... We had a very, very close relationship um, until he died in 1989. But after that, uh, I, 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 I looked for a, for a job and met uh, or re-met James Gulliver, who was a well-known entrepreneur in food retailing, and joined with him and David Webster and Alistair Grant in a thing called James Gulliver Associates, which did extremely well. Um, we took stakes in a number of companies, and one of the companies we took a stake in uh, James knew the chairman of the advertising agency very well, Ken Gill, was Saatchi and Saatchi Garland Compton, um, or Garland Compton as it then was, it was a small listed company. And that uh, in a reverse takeover, Saatchi's was injected into that. And that's how I got to know through James, through Ken Gill, uh, got to know Morris and Charles Saatchi. We, we started to do some consulting work for them, uh, James Gulliver and myself around about, uh, what was it, about 1975 uh, and 75 and 76 with consulting work. And in 77, Morris popped the question about whether I'd like to join Sarches as their CFO, uh, which I did do. And I was CFO at Sarches for nine years. And then at the grand old age of uh, 40, um, I decided to uh, go off and start uh, my own thing. And together with a stockbroker called Preston Rabel, we bought into what was then called Wire and Plastic Products uh, in 1985. Uh, and for 32 and a half years, ran WPP until I left in 2018. 
and started S4 Capital. So, so okay. that's me in a nutshell. So uh, when you made that opening gambit, buying wire and plastic products in 1985, was it always your plan or your ambition to build the world's biggest advertising and PR agency? Well, my dad has always said, you know, find an industry that you enjoy and find a company in it that you enjoy. And, you know, the industry was advertising and marketing and there were no barriers to entry. There was a lot like sports and entertainment, you know, you're only as good as your last ad, but, you know, at least in theory. And uh, it wasn't a question about who you knew or, you know, it was really what, what you could do. So, and, and Morris and Charles were running a very stimulating place and nothing was impossible. Um, you know, you could, you could do anything there as long as you didn't get any public credit for it, that you could, you could, you could virtually do anything you wanted to do. And it was really a superb uh, atmosphere and uh, a great, great group of people, Tim Bell and Jerry Sinclair, Bill Muirhead, all the, these people, outstanding people, uh, outstanding group, very successful. Um, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a, a great, a great environment. And, um, but my dad said, you know, build a reputation, which I managed to do as CFO of, uh, of Sarches. And then, he said, if you fancy at some stage, you know, starting your own business, go ahead and do it. So I, I did it at 40, maybe with the benefit of hindsight, you know, I could have done it a, f- a couple of years earlier, maybe at 35 or something like that. But uh, that's um, that's in the past. And then I would give the same advice today. I mean, it's counter counter to what people do today. I mean, people tend to flip from opportunity to opportunity. I mean, often people don't stay the course at university. They go to university, they leave Stanford or Harvard or wherever it happens to be, and um, they go and found, found uh, mega successful or meta successful um, uh, companies. Um, my own view is, you know, you should complete that, that education. It's, it's a unique opportunity to spend three years or however. I, had, I spent five years um, learning, and, uh, and, and I did it in two different countries, the UK. Uh, and the US, and I think I was extremely fortunate. And I think it's a unique opportunity in your life to do that. You don't get that opportunity again to spend that amount of time thinking about what you're doing and accumulating knowledge uh, and experience. But that was my dad's dad's advice: build the reputation if you fancy starting something. And that's what I did. And in 1985, and you know, as luck would have it, luck plays an extremely important part in what you do. And we we started with a million pounds shell. And we built that at its peak. I think it reached a value of about 22 billion pounds. Uh, when I left, it was 16. And as you said in your opening, it's now now 12. So, uh, and I mean, you know, as part of uh, the growth of uh, WPP, I think you grew the business mainly by acquisition, including a fair few hostile takeovers. Uh, one of them, Ogilvy and, and May, the chairman, uh, David Ogilvy, famously refer to you in, uh, let's say, colourful terms. Well, uh, odious, odious, odious little jerk reported the Financial Times, but that's because the Financial Times couldn't, was... use, the word, couldn't <laughs> use the word shit. Ah, I see. So, so <laughs> they, 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 they but, but David did write me an apology, which I have in my study. Actually, he wrote the apology uh, really as an ad. He wanted to run it as an ad. But by the time he'd finished typing it out on his Chateau Tufo notepaper i have it um as i said in my study it was too late but uh, what he said was uh, you know I, I i made that comment uh, before i met martin uh, when i met martin um you know it, it it changed the reason it changed was i read every book that david had written before i met him and i could quote sort of verbatim 
great chunks of it. And I think he was really flattered and impressed that I think that was the, the key thing. So the, the moral of that story is do your research. But did you ever care what people thought about you? I mean, I guess you need a thick skin. Well, you, you know, you know, yes, you have a thick skin, um, but you know, obviously you care about it. To say that you don't care is, is uh, would be uh, an exaggeration. But I think you develop a, a thick skin to it and you do what you think is the right thing to do. Uh, can you, how did he phrase his apologies? Just uh, sorry, you, you seemed you're a nice guy. Uh, after all, it's my, it, was, it was headed my first apology. <laughs> And what did I think, he say? I think, I think it was, well, he just said, he said, you know, I, 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 I was, um, I was uh, rude, rude about you or, or vituperative about you or whatever before I met you. But when I met you, you know, I, um, I, I changed my mind and I even agreed to become chairman of the company. I mean, it's an interesting story, actually, just to uh, uh, maybe too long for this book, but I'll have a go at it. So when we, when we, um, we did what we call uh, what was called in those days a fax attack on 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 Ogilvy, and I remember it very clearly because I'd had lunch with Lord Weinstock, uh, who was the the chair. I think it was chairman and CEO, so, uh, or maybe just chairman of GEC, a, a, a man I had immense respect for. And um, I had lunch with him and his board um, just down the down the street from where my office was uh, in in uh, just in Mayfair. And uh, I came back, and, you know, we, we talked about the economy and I came back full of enthusiasm uh, and I literally pressed the button on the, the fax attack um, on, on, on Ogilvy. And um, we, we, we positioned that, that, we sent that letter, uh, it was on a Friday evening and we, know, we knew that Ogilvy were moving offices that day. It's, again, it's about research. And uh, the importance of research, and we knew that they were having a management meeting in upstate New York, and, and their communications were were. This was not in the, the days of obviously of iPhones. Their communications were somewhat primitive. I mean, I think they probably had a fax machine, but it was it didn't work extremely well. So we sent uh, sent it. I think it was about five o'clock um, London time. We sent the the, the fax off, and the and the last line of the fax, or the last paragraph said that we wanted to offer David Ogilvy the chairmanship. And the, and the facts went to Ken Roman, who was the uh, chairman and chief executive. David was honorary president, I think. Uh, but we said we wanted to offer it to David Ogilvy. When I met David, because I'd never met him before before that, before he made that, that odious little jerk or shit remark. Um, when I met him, you know, uh, and I remember met him in a hotel in New, New York, I, I started you know, to talk to him about you know, his career and everything. And he started his agency when he was 42, actually. He'd worked at Gallup and selling other cookers and everything. Um, and then I, you know, we talked about his writings and his thoughts on advertising, etc. And then I came to him and I said, well, what did you think of the letter? And he said, oh, you, you know, he said, you know, I understand what you, you want to do, etc. And I said, what do you think of the last paragraph? He said, what are you talking about? And I said, well, the paragraph where we offered you the chairmanship. He said, what are you talking about? And and what had happened? We knew we we knew there was antipathy between Ken Roman and David Ogilvy. Uh, you know, Ken was trying to run the business, and I think he felt that David interfered too much, rightly or wrongly. Uh, but Ken had removed the last paragraph from the copy of the letter that that he sent David. So that that immediately endeared me, and that's probably the reason why he wrote me the wrote me the apology, endeared me to David because. 
because he really was interested in continuing to be involved in the business. And, and I have to say, he was obviously of, of an age, but but he was a great help uh, in in helping me uh, steer um, Ogilvy from then on. Right. And as we mentioned, you departed WPP in 2018. Um, right. And also mentioned that the uh, the value of WPP has fallen uh, significantly <laughs> since then. How hard though was it to leave the company that you founded? Right. It is difficult. Decade? It is difficult. I mean, you know, advice to any, anybody listening is choose your chairman carefully. In fact, I see I see the chairman has been doing the chairman of, of, of WPP has been doing the same thing at Smith and Nephew. I think he's gone through about three CEOs. Doesn't seem to affect his position, but it seems to affect the position of CEOs. Um, no, I think look, it does. And the honest answer is, it wasn't wasn't pleasant. And um, you know, I've said before in relation to S four. I mean, we're, we're now have market value of almost three billion pounds. Um, you know, from a standing start, um, three three and a half years ago, we went. We were listed in what, September the thirtieth, two thousand eighteen. We have eight thousand over eight thousand people in thirty three countries. Uh, you know, a, a portfolio of clients. It really is rooted around tech, Google, one of the biggest, well, one of the biggest companies on the planet, uh, which is NDA'd, so we don't, we don't name it. And then thirdly, Facebook and, and BMW uh, and then Mondelez and HP and Amazon and Netflix and Spotify and uh, PayPal and others. So it's a, it's a, it's a very good, uh, smaller, smaller business. And uh, obviously, uh, that was a, a difficult time in 2018, but you know we benefited 2020 hindsight. I made it. I, I made it quite clear that I think we had a point to prove. I didn't want to retire. I didn't want to play golf, um, despite being 73. Um, I wanted to continue to be involved. I think you know if you if you retire, obviously there are sort of mental and physical effects of doing that and i think you tend to vegetate so i think staying active or keeping active i think is really important um so i think you know s4 has, has proven so far to be uh, a really interesting opportunity and it's focused as i said before not on globalization or globalization and tech but it's pure tech and pure growth and when i left in 2018 and in 2017 we struggled at uh, WPP with top line growth or lack of it. Uh, and I said to myself, what I want to really do is to focus on growth and focus where uh, technology is going or where we think it's going. Uh, it's the Gretzky quote, quote, the famous ice hockey player, Wayne Gretzky, who said, skate to where the puck's going to be, not where it is. And you know, we've, 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 our objective at S4 is to create a new advertising and marketing services model because the existing model, which we helped create at WPP, has been in, in place since 1950s, Marion Harper and IPG. So it's 70 years old. And what we're trying to do is create a new model. And we have four basic principles. We focus on growth and digital is where the growth is. So we're purely digital. We have a data-driven model creating advertising content and distributing through digital media in a continuous loop. So, so improving it iteratively all, all the time. We go to market as faster, better, cheaper. That's agility, understanding the digital ecosystem. That's better and cheaper means efficiently. And then finally, we have a unitary structure, just one P&L instead of multi-brands to cover agent, uh, client conflicts, which we think 
is not the model for today. What you have today is to, to do mm. today is to bring everything together. So that's the that's very simply the the objective. Is there, um, is there a sixth objective there? Um, that according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, one of your objectives now is to kind of take down WPP. Um, <laughs> well, then, uh, well, yeah, yeah, no, it, it's it's to prove a point. I mean, I think there is something in in that to prove a point that you know we can build a strong digital operation. I mean, I came in for some criticism at at um, WPP, particularly in 2017, that we weren't moving fast enough in, in digital. I mean, when I was at WPP, I think we were about 40% digital, which is still a number that they quote. I mean, you know, even yesterday on their results, um, they were talking about being at around, I think, 38% digital or something or something. So I'm not quite sure what's, what's happened. Maybe they've changed the definitions. But um, no, I think we, we came under criticism for being a bit slow. And I think that was to some extent justified. And if, if I look back, I mean, if you said to me, you asked me, what do I regret? It's probably moving not moving faster that you you always i mean i think a lot of people say this is that you know you spot a trend you think that's the way the market's going that could be you know globalization you know the importance of asia pacific the importance of china and india you know knowing what what i know now about china and india probably would have gone much faster at wpp despite the fact that in both those cases case of india we had a 50 share of the market in case of China, we had twenty. Which, when you think about, it, we were a, a foreign, a foreign company, uh, is is quite remarkable in its way. I mean, it was, it, it was a in the case of India about historical, not accident, but history. Ogilvy was strong in India. JWT was strong in India. YNR less so, but we built a very good canter. Had a great business in India, so we had very strong market positions with the deals that we that we brought together but i think the re, the, the regret you always have is when you spot a trend especially when you spot something successfully you say why didn't i move uh, that much faster so with that one caveat i would say that that's probably the thing that i regret most and of course, there's more to you than just work. You are, as I mentioned in the introduction, a governor of the London School of Economics. You've also held. Oh, well, like, like, London Business School used to be. I'm now on the AISA board. I take a big interest in Harvard. I've, I've been involved with the CEIBS in, in China. I've uh, been involved with the Indian School of Business. So I, I love, I love um, uh, the sort of education side of business. Um, and I think that's really, really important. Uh, also with the Brazilian Business School historically, so I, I like, I enjoy that. I've got a family foundation, modest, not not huge, but we like to do a little bit of work. I mean, obviously, when my father died of cancer, that's something that uh, we like to, to to focus on. My mother died of emphysema, um, so we try and focus. I, I like to 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 give some money to the the institutions that I benefited from and that my kids benefited from. So. Uh, we, we tend to focus in those areas. Um, historically, uh, the family has been sort of interested in some some projects in places like Africa. Not not big, uh, super big. Trying to to look at things that we can do with a maximum impact. So I would say cancer education, some geographic stuff as well. And of course, one institution that uh, I guess had an impact on you. Uh, and which we'll go into more detail now, what was uh, haberdashers, one assumes. Uh, you'll tell us exactly whether that was for good or bad or exactly how. <laughs> uh, 
Um, no, it was no, it was good. I, I was I was at West Bear Road. I used to um, used to to my father used to drop me off um, at West Bear Road. I used to flee from the car as as everybody else was walking down the street. I was uh, coming down the street uh, in in the car, and I would jump jump out at West Bear Road. And then I, I was one of the first boarders at Elstree um, in my last uh, what was it three years. Uh, which which was great because you know I didn't have the morning travel and the evening travel. I could go home at weekends. Uh, I enjoyed cricket. I wasn't a great cricketer, but I played cricket and a little well, bit of captain. Rugby. You must have been. Yes, really, but, but there's still a picture no, 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 hanging, no. hanging in the that, pavilion there. Apparently, <laughs> but there's no, those were the days when haberdashers were not very good at cricket. They're much much better now. Um, no, so I no I did. I tried. Uh, I tried, but. You know, I was a boycottian rather than Com- Comptonian or however one wants to put it, or Dexterian. Um, no, so I, I was, um, and then rugby, I, I think I made it as high as the, the second 15. I think it was captain, captain of the second 15. So it enabled me to do sport, enabled me to do um, my, my A-levels. And then I had to get O level Latin to get into Cambridge. Those were the days when you right. it was the use of English and two O levels or Latin and one of foreign language. And I, you know, in order to get in, I just had to pass my Latin O level. So I took ten. I think I took ten Latin boards to get. I think I got all of them actually in the end. <laughs> but that was frantic. No, I no, I, I liked my days at Haberdashers. Um, but you, you mentioned uh, it was good. You mentioned the sport. I understand you were also um, into boxing there. I guess that also came in. Oh, yeah, I know. Well, I was in but, but, but prep school. Yes. Yeah, I was in boxing. But my mother insisted that I stopped boxing because she thought I would end up with a broken nose. I ended up with a broken nose in a car accident when I was in America with Simon Sharma in 1964. Uh, he wasn't in the car, but I went through the windscreen. And that's what face, my, my face has been a mess ever since. But um no, so I, 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 early bo- early boxer, early boxer. So no, I, I my years at Habitat. But one thing you know, you, you were saying which which you know I do. I remember Jeff Randall at the BBC said I was oversensitive, but and and probably it's something that gets into tender territory. But but I always remember, um, you know, I was a member of the cricket team, and I think we were travelling in a minibus uh, to. Um, Brentwood School. I'm pretty sure it was Brentwood. It was either Brentwood or Chigwell. And it was a Jewish holiday. It was it was Sukkot or Passover or something. And I'd be playing. I wouldn't play on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur, but I would play on Sukkot or Passover. So I was a three-day-a-year Jew. And um, I was in the back of the bus, and a guy, I remember it very clearly, he said to me, Sorrel, you're different. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you're a Jew. And I always remember it because there was a, 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 a the, the teacher in the, was in the front of the bus. There was somebody driving the bus and his name was Gaiden. Um, I can't remember his first name, but his nickname was Teeth. He was known as Teeth Gaiden because he had big, shiny teeth. And um, I always remember he never said anything. He heard the conversation and he never said anything. And of course, if that sort of thing would happen today, and as I said, Jeff Randall at the BBC said I was oversensitive about it, but if that sort of thing happened today, there would be a ruckus about it, um, and quite rightly so. 
in those days, those things were 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 not accepted, but people tried to gloss over them. So I think that was one of the the down days. But um, generally, they were very really good days. I actually worked with uh, Jeff when I was at the BBC myself, so so I know him. I know him quite well. Uh, but when you were at Habs, we, we, we've talked a bit about the sports, but uh, and about your uh, Latin O levels and and the like. Were you a good student in general? Uh, I, I I worked hard, but I wasn't great. Simon was a star. I remember Roy Roy, Roy Avery, who was um, the, the the head of the department. In fact, I spoke to Roy recently, as did Simon, uh, who's a lovely man, went went to become headmaster of Bristol Grammar School. And I think Alan Bennett's History Boys was play was based on the history department. Ian Lister, uh, Irvin Smith. I'm trying to remember. Irvin, was it Roy Irvin Smith? They 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 were the history teachers. And it was a superb history department. I mean, I did history, and I remember Roy Avery. We, we, our first essay was on George the Third, right? The first A level essay, uh, you know, first semester, first term of our two years of history. I did history, economics, and geography. Willits was our economics um, master. Fantastic, superb. Used to sit in assembly. Tom Taylor was facing us and Bill Crossman was facing us. And I think his name was Keith Willits. Willits would, would open up a copy of the Financial Times whilst Tom Taylor was giving us all the, the, the announcements. But going back to Roy Avery, Roy Avery um, set us a, an essay on um, George III. And um, I put my essay in and Roy took me to one side and said, now, let me, let me show you what a really good essay is. And he gave me a copy of Simon's essay, yeah. uh, which was, which, and, and the big tome on George III was by Jack Plum, who was, was eventually Master of Christ, but he was, the, uh, was Simon's history tutor eventually at Christ, Christ Cambridge, where we both, we both went. And um, I read Simon's essay, and it seemed to me, I mean, I've got to say this, I mean, it seemed to me that most of the essay was, was was just a, a a a copying of great chunks <laughs> from from uh, Plum's George the Third tome, but jo- the George the Third tome was that thick. I mean, it was about six inches thick. I mean, I, I think I might have read the preface, but, but or the conclusion, but I don't think I read it much. You know, very much so. But that 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 was the beginning of Simon's illustrious, far more illustrious career. Than mine uh, in history. In fact, I had lunch or dinner with him. Uh, he's in the process of filming another great series for BBC, and uh, I saw him last week. I think it was we had dinner. Uh, his birthday is on February the thirteenth, so he was he was seventy seven on February the thirteenth, and I was seventy seven on February the fourteenth. So, right. Well, uh, the archivist had had actually told me that your birthdays were. Well, one day apart. But one thing that Sir Simon uh, revealed to us on this podcast was that he held, and, and we found this quite hard to believe given his success and his studiousness, that he held the, the then record for the number of detentions at Haberdashers. And I'm just wondering if maybe you came close or if you shared any of those kind of after school punishments well, with him. Um, well, I don't know whether that's true. I think that Simon is prone to exaggeration. <laughs> and I think that, that might be. But I do. I do remember this one. So um, there was a, a, did he teach? I think he taught Latin. His name was Mouse. His nickname was Mouse, Mouse Griffiths. And he had glasses. He had 
defective hearing. I think one of his one of his ears was 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 deaf, and um, you know we would do things like mouse grizzlies would come into. He, he, he taught Latin. I'm pretty sure it was. He would come into the classroom and would say, "Is this my class?" And we would say, "No," and he would disappear and then come back again and say, "Oh, you are my class." And anyway, he he used to take. Um, I think we had a private study period. We used to do it in the library. It was at West Bureau. Uh, and um, as, a, as I don't know why I ended up doing this, but I pretended to be two different people because he. he his his sight was not great. He had these very thick glasses and a bit deaf. I mean, you could you, literally, there was one boy who stood on his deaf side and shouted at him. <laughs> it, was, it was hysterical. Anyway, Mouse would, 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 had a book and he would record the name of everybody who's doing private study. And at one end of the library, I was Sorrel. And at the other end, I was, let's call it Smith, right? So he would come to the other end I would walk around and he would tick me off. So I was two people. Unfortunately, I don't know what it was that happened, but um, Smith got a detention. Not, not Sorrel, Smith got a detention. <laughs> so, so, and, and, and Taylor, Tom Taylor or Thomas Taylor or, or Bill Crossman, you know, who was that JP who was Justice of the Beef, who was deputy headmaster. Terrible guy, but anyway, they would read out the names of the detainees of the the people who got detained or detentionees, and unfortunately, I had to do my detention as Smith. And my recollection is, I had to do it as Smith, not Sorrel. So we got up to we were naughty boys. Couldn't you just have not turned up, and then when they said to you, "Why weren't you there?" You'd have said, "Well, my name's Sorrel. I don't know who Smith is." <laughs> I thought I saw it was serve out my time, but Mouse Griffiths, I mean, Willis, I mean, they were good characters, actually. We had a um, very wonderful English teacher whose name Simon would remember who it was. Very debonair, very smooth, great, great te English teacher. Simon would remember who that was. But Roy Avery, superb history teacher, um, a good geography teacher as well. I'm trying to remember his name. Um, but Willis on, on, on uh, Willit. Uh, on economics was superb. Uh, had a sort of somewhat Hitlerian moustache, and it was always used. You know, when Taylor was reading the, the the notices out to us, he would tell the Financial Times and read it. We were watching. Wonderful. Um, so, so, I mean, given what you said, uh, one would have thought that uh, mischievous would be one of the adjectives. Uh, that was on your kind of um, final school report, which has been dug up by the archive. No. Archive. Really? Oh my God! Was it? But it's not one of them. What? What can you? I'll give you like a couple of guesses. You've got this four adjectives used to describe you. I'm wondering if you can have any guesses. No, I got, I got no, no, no idea whatsoever. No idea whatsoever. I mean, I, the other thing was I was in the boarding house, and there was a an American scholar called Bill Hayes. Um, they, they were they called the ESU scholars. They came from some pretty good schools like Andover. He came from Andover. And he was an American football player and he played in our rugby team and he was quite good, actually. Uh, but he, he, he coming from America, I mean, they were um, you know, boarding schools in America full of japes, you know, frater fraternities and all that. And my bed was right by we had a dormitory, about 12 of us, I think, in the dormitory. My bed was right by the door where he slept with about three or four other guys. And and um, he. Um, he put water into a waste paper basket and 
you know, I, I can't remember why, but anyway, he comes in and he pours the water all over me. You know, this is uh, this is at about two or three in the morning. Unfortunately, Alden House was not exactly well built and all the water seeped through into the reception area. And whoever was the housemaster, I'm trying to remember who it was, was absolutely livid. We, we didn't reveal, until today, we did not reveal the name of the, of the, the miscreant. We, we, I think we were all detained as a result of it. But no, give me the adjectives. I can't there's remember. No, uh, I, just as well, there's no stat, there, there, there's a statute of limitations on detentions, I guess. Otherwise, if he's uh, still around, then he'd uh, find himself doing an essay with someone. So, so the final, uh, the, there are a couple of few adjectives there. Uh, you were described in your final report as studious, oh God. Uh, lively, oh. and open-minded. Um, I'm oh. afraid there wasn't, there wasn't much dirt on you, unfortunately. So, oh um, dear, oh dear. What was, was Simon's? What was Simon's? Uh, I'd have to go back to my <laughs> my script uh, for Sir Simon. I wasn't expecting to have to uh, remember. Okay, well, I got away. I was getting a bit worried that there would be other things there, but it sounds okay. But it's all on the podcast with uh, with Sir Simon Sharma, and uh, uh, so uh, we can listen to that as well. Um, but, but I think it was uh, Woody Allen who, when asked if he'd like to achieve immortality through his work, replied that he wanted to achieve immortality through not dying. Uh, how do you <laughs> want to be? How do you want to be remembered? Uh, you know, uh, in the future. I've got I've got no no uh, I've got nothing to say on that. No, I'll leave it. I'll leave it for people to uh, to. I think you know. Obviously, it's more a question around family, I think, than than anything else. But no, that's I'll I'll leave it to to people to make their minds up. Okay, so I just got some rapid fire questions left for you, which, which sure. uh, don't, don't require uh, huge answers. I, I suppose, I suppose stu studious, lively, and open minded probably. Would be a bit. <laughs> that's not a bad epitaph to have, is it? So, uh, um, so, uh, so Martin, uh, what year did you leave the school? Sixty three. And did you enjoy your time there? Yes. And who was the head of the school when you were at Habs? Um, it was, I think it was, well, the head of the boarding house was Pitt Nyack. He was a Kenyan and I was deputy head of the boarding house. I don't remember who, I was a prefect, but I can't remember who the head, was it John Mapleston? Was, <laughs> I think, head of the school? That was a name that comes, I can't remember who else. You, you haven't got it in your records, have you? Uh, I, I don't have it here, so, um, and I, I can barely remember the name of the headmaster when I was there, so, and, and I, I, I was there <laughs> a little more recently than, than you. Um, so, and you mentioned some of the teachers already. Who, who were your favourite teachers and, and what did they teach? I like Willett and, and economics, I think that, and then Roy Avery on history, uh, Irvin Smith on history. Ian Lister was another historian. There. I mean, they were super good. I mean, they were, they were fantastic teachers. Uh, I have to say that, you know, when, when I think about teachers and uh, obviously Cambridge had good teachers, although I think the tutorial system I found was not as good. I think at HBS at Harvard, the teachers, the teachers were really actors at uh, Walt Salmon in marketing, uh, manufacturing policy, Wickham Skinner. These were, these were, these were not just these were not just academics or trade. I mean, it's a trade school, Harvard Business School. It's not a, not an academic school, but they were superb. Their, their personalities. They were superb teachers because they were superb actors. I mean, they were humorous. They they talked brilliantly and and very very precise. You didn't open your mouth in a in a case study course unless you you knew what you were going to say. Otherwise, you got you were taken down. So um, 
I, I think I think that was the best teaching experience I've ever had. But at Haberdashers, I would say those people. And uh, am I right in thinking uh, that that did you you never made it to Elstree? You'd left before the school moved to Elstree, is that no, right? No, no, I was at, I was at, I was at Elstree. I was in Norman oh. House. That was the that was the boarding there. So so I I straddled Westbier Road, and I I was at Elstree for the last three years three, three years as, as a weekly boarder. In that case, I have to ask you if there was any uh, interactions or shenanigans with uh, students at the other school uh, over the other side of the gate. No, no, not not at all. In fact, when you know when you said boys and girls, you know, no, we were we we're all on our own. Okay. And uh, have you kept in touch with the old schoolmates? There were, shena there were shenanigans with Aldenham School. That was, there was a guy called Tony Kerpel. I didn't actually go on the mission, but, you know, we were in the CCF. And I, you know, he, he I'm, I'm pretty sure that this is true. He, 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 he got together, it's Tony Kerpel and a couple of other people put on their fatigues or uh, uniforms went down the, the road to Aldenham School and put potassium permanganate in their swimming pool. What, what does that do to you if you uh, are in a pool? It, make, it makes it pink. It makes right. it a very pinky colour. I mean, and we were, I think Tony was mortified that um, it didn't appear in the local press. It was hashed up. But this right. was the military, this was the military exercise. I'm surprised that I don't remember that being in Who Dares Wins or uh, any kind of uh, <laughs> SAS film. Um, aside from uh, Sir Simon Sharma, have you kept in touch with uh, any old schoolmates? No, I, it's really just Simon actually from 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 school. I I, I must say that, that that one of the most depressing experiences I've had recently, I won't go into detail, was um, a, a reunion. It was somebody's 80th birthday. It was actually in America, and God, it was depressing. Right. Oh, I guess 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 I got that to look forward to. And just finally, did you have any um, recent accomplishments uh, you, you'd like to mention beyond no. those that we've already discussed? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Well, I suppose my my fourth child, Bianca, actually was a, is an achievement. She's five years old. So, but I have th uh, three three wonderful boys and uh, a wonderful daughter. Well, well, congratulations. I'm sure they uh, they keep you on your toes uh, and perhaps keep you up at night even more than uh, what's going on in Ukraine. Well, when you said, you know, what keeps me up at night, yes, the, 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 that's probably true. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, on that note, uh, Sir Martin Sorrell, founder of WPP and S4 Capital, and of course, Habs Boy, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me and to us on the We Are Habs podcast. Thanks, Elliot. And give my love to everybody in Israel. I will do that. And uh, just for those who are watching or listening, uh, if you uh, want to know uh, more about our guests or the school, you can uh, visit www.habsboys.org.uk or gotkin.com. And you can follow us on your favorite social media at Habs or at Elliot Gotkin or at E Gotkin. And uh, we'll be back again next time with another celebrated old haberdasher, perhaps uh, someone close to home. Uh, we do hope you'll join us again then. Take care.